Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed. We will speak with subject matter experts and distill lessons of history in our attempt to connect the timeless with the immediate. Today's guest is Professor Dr. Tobias Stroman, who teaches applied history at the University of Zurich and has a keen interest in areas like European monetary and financial history. He is the author of a fascinating book aptly titled 1931, Debt, Crisis and the Rise of Hitler, published by Oxford University Press. It was selected as one of the best books of 2019 by the Financial Times critics. So, Professor, before we get down into the nitty-gritty of the book, can you touch upon your background and what made you choose to pursue the confluence of economics, finance, and history? Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation about the book. Um, My background is uh, I studied history, but I was always aware of the importance of economic conditions, economic developments. When I started, I also start, I started started to study history. I also started to study uh, economics. And after my PhD, I worked as a journalist for five years in the financial section section of a newspaper. And I witnessed uh, the Asian crisis from 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 Switzerland. But of course, it had, it had also an impact on, on on our banks and our financial monetary system. And that's how I uh, became more and more interested in in uh, the intersection of history, economics, and, and finance. And what specifically excites you about your field of work? Uh, well, it's very relevant because financial crises, uh, recessions have an enormous impact on, on everything, on, on politics, society, also um, on, 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 on our uh, psychology. So it's a very relevant, important topic. Um, and I also like because it, um, it, it allows you to make connections between different areas of society. Uh, it's not a confined subject, but you can talk about the relationship of finance and politics or, or uh, recessions and politics, policies. So it's, it's very broad. It's a very broad um, topic, and I, I like that a lot. What were the resources that you relied upon in preparing and researching for this book? Well, first of all, there, there has been a, a, an excellent literature on various aspects of these topics. I mean, this, it, there are excellent books and papers on the Great Depression, uh, starting in the Great Depression itself. Um, there is a very lively discussion among economic and financial monetary historians about the topic, meeting each other and uh, very excited about about it, although it, it's been passed by almost 100 years now, but it still fascinates many, many historians. So that was one building block. And uh, the second one was a variety of sources that have become uh, available online, newspapers, uh, diaries, minutes of governments and and, uh, protocols of uh, parliaments. So there is a vast amount of of, of sources available online. And then there is also uh, literature of editions of, for example, diplomatic um, sources. So 
it, it's fantastic. You have a very, very rich literature and a very rich set of sources. How do you go about filtering the sources that might not be 100% accurate? And how do you arrive at a judgment that the literature treats the, the subject with 100% honesty? That's very difficult because um, written sources are always uh, just a selection of reality and often they they have been manipulated or were manipulated at the time. For example, protocols of, uh, of a cabinet, of a government, uh, that, that, that's never the, the, the truth itself. It's always, uh, uh, as I said, manipulated. But the best thing is if you have several sources describing the same events and that's that's usually possible in that era uh, in that era uh, and a very important source were for me um, the diaries of the say, state uh, secretary of the finance ministry he uh, of the German finance ministry and that that allowed me to check the official sources from a personal, point of view and uh, often I found, I found some divergence between the official uh, description of an event and the personal description of an event. And I think if you're not able to find out what's true, you have to tell the reader. I think that's very important that you remain honest and uh, I think the reader doesn't mind if you if you tell him or her that, that it's not possible to, to have a precise a description or a precise answer to a to an important question. So you've prefaced the book uh, with this passage, and I quote: "The immediate spur to action came from my unease observing the intense debates surrounding the euro crisis that erupted in Greece in 2010 and spilled over to other southern European countries and Ireland, as in the 1930s, a doomed loop of activity involving sovereign debt." private debt, bank failures, and a deficient monetary system led to a financial crisis that shook and, in my view, continues to shake Western Europe's political foundations." End quote. What, what was the motivation behind writing this book? Uh, I, wanted to, I want you to go in depth about the choice of the subject matter and why you approached it in the way that you've done. Yeah, I was really shocked by what happened in Southern Europe during the Euro crisis uh, that started in uh, 2010 and lasted about two years. Um, and I was really shocked by, um, because I thought that uh, the policies of the Great Depression uh, would not repeat themselves. Uh, but obviously that, that was a miscalculation. And what we saw was kind of the same uh, um, playbook we can obs we, we could observe in the early 1930s in in Germany and um, uh, that was important for me to remind the public that uh, the the policies pursued during the euro crisis were highly dangerous from a political point of view that they um, that they could uh, potentially damage democracy and uh, and really uh, uh, destabilize the political culture in a very sustainable way and uh, that, that that was the main motivation were you surprised at the way bailout was decided after after what greece uh, tried to do uh, with with their finance minister was a maverick of sorts what ultimately happened it did any of that surprise you 
Yes, it was not so much the bailout because eventually I think a bailout was was correct. Uh, Greece and other countries needed financial help by the other Euro Eurozone members. Uh, no, no, what, what really shocked me was that uh, when the crisis started, there was a flight of capital out of these southern European countries, and that led to a decline of the prices of their government bonds. And the right way to address this crisis would have been, from the beginning, to have the European Central Bank give a guarantee and, and buy those, those bonds on the market to, to stabilize their prices. But instead, during two years, uh, they opted for austerity, uh, increased taxes, lowered expenses, and of course, predictably, that only deepened their economic crisis. And uh, it took the European governments and especially the ECB, the European Central Bank, two years to realize that this kind of policy was completely counterproductive. It undermined even more confidence of investors in the, the fiscal capacity of these countries because they were that they were deepening the crisis. So that, that, that's the parallel between uh, 2010-12 and 1930-31. Uh, and telling the history of 1931 was thought to remind politicians and uh, the broader public of what's at stake uh, in the Eurozone. And uh, possibly uh, we're going to see a rerun of, of these kind of problems. And then it's, it's very useful to to look back at history and see uh, what we should avoid next time. At the very beginning of the book, uh, you make a very fascinating observation. And I'm going to quote again here. Germany's 1931 financial crisis not only gave the Nazis the opening they needed, but also triggered an international liquidity crisis, throwing banks and financial markets across the globe into chaos. Panicked investors forced Sterling to go off the gold standard prompting a wave of devaluations in such distant places as India and Japan, a run on the dollar, and a banking crisis in the United States. Like dominoes, the pillars of the global economy toppled one after another. It was not the stock market crash of 1929 that pushed the world into economic depression, but the German crisis of 1931, end quote. The mainstream view of history doesn't seem to suggest this, what we were told was the insatiable greed of Wall Street led to the crash of 1929 and subsequently the Great Depression. You clearly seem to disagree. Can you elaborate in detail? Sure. Um, first of all, I would like to mention that I'm, I'm telling a mainstream story. So most economic historians uh, agree on the importance of, of 1931. Uh, Nobody is downplaying 1929, and in, in fact, it was the beginning of the of the recession, and it was from the beginning quite a severe recession. Stock market crash is not able to cause a depression. You need additional factors, and uh, one factor was, of course, the the passive um, monetary policy of the Fed in the face of uh, banking crises in the United States that started in late 1930. But I think the German crisis uh, was such a powerful and devastating event, not only for Germany, but for the global economy, that this was actually the turning point, that after the, the collapse of Germany's financial and monetary system in the middle of 1931, affected every country, and uh, sometimes directly, 
but also indirectly. For example, when when there was a run on the on the British pound, and uh, the Bank of England and the British government finally decided to devalue their currency in this, in September of, of 1931 as a direct uh, consequence of the German crisis, investors were afraid of a devaluation of the US dollar. So they withdrew their funds from the US, which then prompted the, the Fed to increase interest rates in the middle of a very already severe recession and uh, in the middle of a severe deflation. Uh, the, the Great Depression was not only uh, negative economic growth, but it was also it also involved negative uh, prices. Um, just imagine in, a, in, a, in an environment of five to maybe ten, minus five to minus ten percent negative inflation, you increase interest rates. That's absolutely devastating. And and uh, immediately when the Fed increased the interest rates in in October of nineteen. 31, there was a huge banking crisis in, in the US, which in turn deepened the, the economic crisis in, in America. So, and that in turn then hit uh, the whole uh, world economy. So, so it was really it was horrible. And all these spillover effects and these um, repercussions were, were highly negative. And and that was much more severe than, than just the stock market crash at Wall Street. Many people forget that the stock market crash was severe, but uh, share prices recovered after a couple of months. And in the spring of 1930, most people or many people uh, had the feeling that the worst was over. But then the banking crisis started in, in, in the US. And that, that that's a new stage of of escalation and then on the global level i think it's really the, the german crisis because of all these uh, repercussions and uh, it's not surprising because germany at the time was the second largest economy in the world and uh, through financial transactions capital movements and also uh, through the gold standard the, the major economies were linked together and and as i just explained when uh, one country was in trouble, that that could lead to uh, to contagion, and and then investors would become so nervous that they would withdraw their money from everywhere, even from safe places, and that of course triggered a self fulfilling prophecy. So that, that that it was really it was really a horrible scenario that uh, that uh, became real after after the German crisis. So I think it, it's it's quite clear once you enter into the details of this contagion process that uh, that it was much more severe than the, the, the stock market crash of 1929. Um, of course, it's not it's not irrelevant, and and in a way, um, for contemporaries, the the stock market crash marked the beginning of of the, of the long recession and depression. But that doesn't mean from an economic or from an economic history uh, perspective that this was really the, the main factor. But ultimately, uh, the U.S. did have to devalue their dollar against, uh, against gold in 1933, despite uh, raising interest rates during a, a deep recession. Yes. Uh, but not in the in the fall of 1931. Investors were afraid of an early devaluation, but uh, because the Fed um, increased interest rates, 
it was able to reattract uh, gold and capital outflows turned back into uh, transform themselves into capital inflows. And uh, after these defensive measures taken by the Fed, uh, the dollar was safe for a couple of, of months. But in the end, it proved much too costly to the real economy, to the people. Unemployment was rising. The banking system was further collapsing. Political support for the Hoover administration began to falter and, and, and so on. So it became too costly to, to maintain uh, the gold standard and to um, pursue this orthodox monetary policy. So in the end, they had to, to give in and it was a very good decision. But it was not possible under the Hoover administration. You needed a new government um, that did not have the problem of uh, face-saving whereas Hoover was hardly the man to, uh, to make this U-turn because he would have contradicted himself completely. So that's why it took, it took a change of administration and it took about another 18 months after this heavy attack in October of 1931 until the U.S. finally uh, uh, could change their economic policies and, and support the recovery. So in the first chapter, you introduced this character called Felix Sommery as the Raven of Zurich. Uh, what is his relevance in this period of history? And, and what was the secret behind that nickname? I've dealt with this figure several times in other publications, and uh, I've always been very fascinated by his memoirs uh, because he was, in a way, invisible behind the scene. But he, he knew everybody, and he talked to everybody on a regular basis, and he tried to advise them, and mostly they did not listen, but still... They kept meeting with him and um, continued the conversation. So I think he's a very fascinating and also typical figure for, for that period because at the time, uh, policies, politics was, was still, they were still more personal. Uh, and these uh, elite networks tied before uh, the First World War, they, they, they played a very important role. Schools were small, universities were small. If you had the privilege to, to attend an university, you had an excellent network and and this allowed for lots of private conversations. So that, that's one reason why I introduced him. The second reason is I thought uh, it would be interesting to start the story differently than most other books. Most other books maybe start with, I don't know, stock market crash or or a government official or whatever. And I thought um, by introducing a new character, who had a, an independent view of economic conditions and who, who understood very well what was at stake and how dangerous the situation was, would be interesting for the reader. And the, the book is, is, is not very original in the sense that I'm, I don't, I'm not coming up with entirely new results, but what's probably new is kind of narrative I come up. I try to reflect the most recent research, but I try to transport it in an accessible way for a broader public. And so looking for interesting personalities and, and uh, unusual encounters, I think is, is good for, for such a book. His nickname was, uh, he was a very pessimistic person. And in that environment, he proved to be entirely right. Later on, I think after World War II, he was too pessimistic and he was not, he didn't understand the situation as well as he understood the situation uh, in the late 20s, early 30s. 
I think at that time he was he was very uh, precise in his observations. Uh, but most people would not listen to him, um, and especially people of the financial sector who were riding the stock market boom. They were they were laughing about him, and uh, he was the president of a of a major New York bank who gave him the nickname the, the Raven of Zurich. Because ravens are, are just pessimistic, dark figures. You don't want to listen to them. They're always wrong. And uh, so Mari lived in Zurich. He, had, he was originally from Vienna, but then left Vienna even before the war. He went to Berlin to uh, develop diplomatic ties between Berlin and London to prevent the world war. It didn't happen. And after World War One, he moved uh, to Zurich because he thought it's the, Switzerland is the only safe place for the time being. And in a way, he was he was right. What were some of his predictions, which were not treated with, with the seriousness that they deserved? What was the relevance of those predictions in the lead up to Hitler's arrival? Um, I think the main prediction was, the, which I cite, is that these uh, international imbalances in the debt markets uh, were extremely dangerous. Um, the situation is, is, I think, is well known, but uh, maybe I repeat it. After, after World War I, France and Great Britain were heavily indebted to the U.S. government, and the, the U.S. government was not ready to dramatically lower these debts. And that meant that both countries, France and Great Britain, were in a very dis- in a desperate situation because not only their foreign debts vis-à-vis the U.S. government, but all, also their domestic debt levels were very high. So they didn't, they didn't have the possibility to be generous towards the Germans. So the, the Germans had to pay an enormous reparation burden and uh, to cover not only uh, the reparations in, in the proper sense, so that the devastated regions in northern France or in Belgium, um, so the immediate reparations resulting from the war, but they also had to cover the debt service of France and Great Britain uh, vis-a-vis the U.S. government. And, and that, that was an impossible situation. And uh, to make it sustainable, at least in the short run, Germany borrowed a lot of private capital from mainly from Wall Street banks, but also from Swiss banks, British banks, Dutch banks, Swedish banks, um, to be able to to make this recycling possible. So the Wall Street money went to Germany, and this money more or less went to France and Britain. But the debt level, the overall debt level did not uh, decrease, but increased. So at the end of the 1920s, Germany had this uh, substantial reparation debts, but also substantial debts to private uh, creditors, to these banks. And if you add those two uh, debt levels, you you always have a a debt, uh, debt to GDP level of 100% almost. And this is enormous just for foreign debts denominated in foreign currencies, often tied to gold, so you could not devalue and uh, lower the debt service by this kind of policies. So they were really in a debt trap. And once the recession started, they were forced to run a double surplus, a fiscal surplus and a trade surplus, because they not only needed to earn the funds they owed to their creditors, but they also need to have foreign exchange to make the transfer possible to their 
foreign creditors. And that, of course, meant lowering uh, not only uh, expenses, government expenses, but also lowering wages in order to improve the trade balance. And and Somari and, and others, he was not the only one, but Somari clearly saw this from the big, from the mid mid 1920s from from the beginning of this uh, this debt bonanza flowing to to germany and uh, he makes very clear predictions what that that, that this um, situation had the potential of of a of a enormous depression and that's exactly what happens what's very special about him and i think that's that's quite quite rare he not only understood economic and financial uh, international imbalances, but he also had a very good sense for the economic, uh, for the political impact uh, of uh, economic crises, and uh, it's, it's it's very impressive. In the end of 1930, he was invited to London to have a, a talk in the Inter- Royal Institute of International Affairs, and there he said, "If if you don't defuse this time bomb, uh, meaning." The German debt. Uh, we're going to talk about this period uh, of the interwar years because we're going to have a new war uh, in, in, in the next couple of years as a result of, of this debt crisis, and that's that's exactly what happened. Uh, so that's that's his most the two most important predictions: the the kind of economic crisis, this this uh, horrible debt crisis that exploded in the summer of 1931. And the political consequences. He really saw both both catastrophes. He he had a very good sense of that, and he, he proved to be absolutely precise. There's a quote from Foreign Minister Gustav Stressman that you uh, mentioned in the book, and I quote again: Foreign Minister Gustav Stressman explained in a speech in 1925, "One must simply have enough debts." One must have so many debts that the creditor sees his own existence endangered if the debtor collapses. Such measures build bridges of political understanding and future political support. End quote. In the book, you mentioned that Stressman had single-handedly shaped German policy through incredibly tough times since 1923. So was he wrong in this and in his understanding in this context? If yes, why is that? And if no... Why is that? Um, he's a very ambivalent figure. On the one hand, he's, he's very impressive because he really reached out to, to France and uh, he was able to, to build a, a confidence between the two countries, especially with the foreign minister Aristide Priant, who was also a very impressive figure. And they both managed yeah, to, to normalize political relations between France and Germany. And that, that was an impressive uh, effort. On the other hand, uh, Stresemann's goal was absolutely mainstream for Germany at the time. He, he wanted to revise the, the Versailles Treaty as soon as possible. Um, and that, of course, uh, uh, ran counter to the interests of France. And in that sense, he did not manage to really normalize uh, relations with France. And because he died in 1929, he didn't have to go all the way uh, until the origin of the Versailles Treaty, but he, that, was, that was his goal. And that's how you can explain this interesting quote that I, I also found in the literature, and that, that that shows that Stresemann was not only just a, a peaceful guy who wanted to have a peaceful world, but he also ha- was a 
clearly a, a German nationalist who uh, put his uh, the interests of his country first and who wanted really to get rid of, of the reparation regime in an unfair way, I think. He just wanted to accumulate as much private debt or as much debt vis-a-vis private uh, creditors so that the reparations uh, would be cancelled. And that's exactly what happened, actually, in 1931, when it became clear that Germany was on the brink of collapse. U.S. President Herbert Hoover proposed a moratorium for all war-related government debts. Uh, And that's, of course, not only the debts of France and Great Britain owed to the U.S. government, but also uh, the reparations debt of the German government. So in a sense, this uh, pumping up of additional foreign debt was not only uh, there for economic reasons, but it was also pursued for, for political reasons. And it was, it was insidious, you know. It was, it was a dangerous strategy. In the end, it led to the, the financial crisis of, of the summer of 1931. So in that sense, uh, Stresemann was an impressive statesman, but he was not a saint. He had he had a revisionist agenda, and he really used this uh, these additional debts to put pressure on the creditors. But by the way, we see the same thing in Italy. Italy is is much bigger than Greece, and uh, therefore it has much more leverage. Uh, because if 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 Italy uh, falls victim to a to a debt crisis, to a sovereign debt crisis, that would be devastating for Europe much more uh, than, uh, than a Greek de- debt crisis. It's just, it's about 10, 10 times as big and, and uh, it, would, it would be horrible. And the Italian politicians, of course, know this, just as Stresemann at the time knew, if I accumulate more and more debt, I, I become more powerful because then the creditor is so afraid of a, of, of a sovereign debt crisis or, or default that uh, he's going to be ready to, to make compromises. And I think that's that's very similar what's happening, uh, what was happening in Germany and what's happening now in, in Italy. And, and is that not the case um, that's true for the debtor nation, United States, and its largest creditor, China? And, and yet they seem to be headed in a, in a Thucydides-like trap in which war seems to be an almost unavoidable option. How do you yourself approach this subject uh, with the hindsight of what uh, Gustav Stresemann said and what ultimately happened? I, I, that's, that's a fundamentally different situation because Germany at the time was indebted in dollars or British pounds or gold uh, or Swiss francs. Uh, and Italy is uh, indebted in, in euros. And euros is not the currency of Italy. It's like a foreign currency because Italy has not the power to set interest rates. It has not the power to devalue. It cannot control monetary supply. So the euro is, is, is also a foreign currency. And that's a fundamental difference, whether you are indebted in a foreign currency or, as the United States, whether you are indebted in your own currency. So for the United States, the fact that China has a large amount of, of, of the foreign debt or, or, or the debt at all of, of the United States uh, is not a problem because uh, it's, 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 it's in dollars. It's in U.S. dollars. So the, the U.S. still has the control of the currency accordingly of the denomination of, of, this, of this debt. That's fundamentally different. And uh, that explains why, why China is not in a particularly 
strong position uh, regarding these, these debt relations. If China starts to uh, sell these treasuries, then the dollar would probably fall or just other creditors would buy them because there is a large demand of, for safe assets that have still uh, positive yields and uh, some of these US treasuries actually still have positive yields. So maybe not now during the COVID crisis, but they, they, they had in the last couple of years. So that, that's a totally different situation. I'm not just talking about these foreign debt traps around debts that are denominated in foreign currency. Those are the very, very dangerous situations, also not only economically, financially, but also politically, foreign policy issues, but even more, I think, domestic policy issues, because you have to pursue a policy of austerity to maintain your debt service. And uh, that, that ruins your economy, your domestic economy, and it ruins uh, political stability. So this is, this is a different thing. I mean, we don't have to talk about it, but, but what's dangerous, of course, is South China Sea. Um, uh, the US is the existing power, world power, and China wants, uh, wants to, to be on equal terms or even above the United States. That's the main problem but not the financial relations. It's a, it's a geopolitical influence and, and all that kind of thing. My understanding from reading the book is that Chancellor Bruning, I mean, he, he comes across as a, almost a hero because he's doing everything in his capacity, physical, political, and intellectual, to, to keep the situation from getting worse because he knew, guess, from, uh, from the situation that it was either the Nazis or the communists who were going to come in next if if his uh, if his policies were to fail and is is that a fair statement and and why did he not succeed ultimately uh, well not entirely he's, he i rather think he's a tragic figure because by fulfilling the conditions imposed by the young plan he had to pursue policies that undermined his position and he knew that and that's, that's the reason why he tried to get rid of reparations without causing or triggering a financial crisis. But in the end, it was just what he did. He The recession became worse and worse because he pursued austerity policies. He pursued those policies because he had to service the foreign debt. And then he he's very desperate and he thinks that he could launch another austerity package in combination with a public statement that this would be the last one because otherwise they would not pay any reparations anymore. And they, he thought that he could secure domestic support for his policies while hurting the people even more. And this proved to be a really, a really wrong calculation. And the, the crisis got out of hand at, at that point. It was already underway, but then it got really out of hand as a result of this statement. But it, was, it reflected his, his dilemma which was really not, uh, you could not solve it. The only way to solve the problem was uh, an early moratorium of these foreign debts or even a, um, a write-down of these debts. But the Young Plan that was um, concluded in, in, in early 1930. The working hypothesis behind the Young Plan was still that you could adjust the old reparation regimes a little bit and that would be sufficient to keep Germany afloat, but but then suing a recession soon showed that this was not possible. And 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 so Brüning is not a hero. He's he's a tragic figure. I think he, he was in an absolutely impossible situation. 
toward the end of the book, you make another interesting observation. And I quote, To be sure, the financial crisis did not bring Hitler immediately to power, as some overly optimistic Nazi grandes like Goebbels expected when the Nath Bank closed its doors on 13th July. There was no direct road from July 1931 to January 1933 when Hitler was named Chancellor by President Hindenburg. But financial diplomacy failed to contain the crisis and the world economy continued to contract and the Nazi party continuously gained ground. What is meant by financial diplomacy? And can you give an example of a successful financial diplomacy from the recent years? Yeah, by financial diplomacy, I mean the, the relationship between creditors and debtors, I mean, especially between the U.S., France, Great Britain, and uh, the big debtor, Germany, that used, you know, you, you figure out a way to relieve the debtor so that it could not default in a chaotic way, but maybe could still pay some debt service. Uh, that, that 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 failed, you know. The, and and I show, I try to show in the book how they tried to bridge their conflicting interests. They, they they really tried hard, and but in the end it was too slow and too late. And then Germany went went bankrupt in in the summer of 1931. And in the end, that's so sad about it. Everybody lost, not only Germany but also the creditor countries, especially uh, the US, France, and, and and Great Britain. That's what I mean. And and that, that's why I frame the whole problem as an international problem. It's not a German problem. Germany was the debtor. It was the center of, of, of action in a way. But what was crucial was the, the, the interplay between debtors and creditor countries. And uh, they failed to f- defuse the bomb. And that's why I'm saying the main reason for the German crisis is the failure of financial diplomacy to come up with... Uh, workable solution at the right time and the same was is, is true for greece they came too late at least they could prevent the world economy from say from, from collapsing in 2015 um, so that was another example of a failure what what went well i think was the reaction to the covid crisis uh, it was a very critical situation in in march of, of this year and fiscal and monetary authorities reacted very swiftly to contain the crisis, and they proved to be very successful. They directly learned from the financial crisis of 2008. They really prevented uh, prevented the down, downturn of, of or, or the meltdown of, of of the financial and monetary system of the world. So that's that was a good that's a good example of financial dis- diplomacy. What are the three figures? Um you have gone into great depths into researching who have been influential in that era and we don't commonly hear about I think the main reason why you don't hear them in the connection with the German crisis is that traditionally history is all, all the historians often concentrate on one country and then they try to explain what happened to that country by describing the political process within the country and and the relationship with foreign powers are being mentioned but they're just more in passing not not as the main reason for a certain development and um, i think that's the one reason why you don't find these personalities together but i think by far the most important uh, man is 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 US president hoover because he was the president of the 
biggest creditor country and the US had most leverage and possibilities and the power to solve this crisis or to prevent the crisis from escalating. So he's, he's by far the most important figure. Two most important people are probably the, the, the British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald because he could could have served as a bridge between, or he could have brought France and Germany together, but but he didn't do that. He was very reluctant to go along with the French. He didn't play the role of a mediator. Third personality is probably the, the, the French prime minister. There were several of them, Tardieu, and maybe the, the foreign minister, Aristide Crillon. So I would really name the personalities of the creditor countries more than the German figures because they were basically just caught in this debt trap and they, they tried what they could do, but they don't didn't really have room room for maneuver. So it's, there was the creditor countries, those those people, especially the US, they had lots of leverage and possibilities. For me, one of the important takeaways from the book was that sovereigns need to be highly cautious when signing international agreements with uh, other nations. What was one of the recent agreements that you think has the potential of creating significant issues in the near term? Uh, It may be in Europe or in North America. Yeah, I'm mostly thinking about the the euro area or about the uh, European monetary Union, I think that's that's a typical example of of an international agreement that has far-reaching consequences for the member countries. But I think most people nowadays agree that the way the European Monetary Union is, is set up is it's not working. It's not working for the deficit and and debtor countries for the weaker economies. It's just not working. And I think it, uh, of course, it's a theoretical argument, but would have been better to to wait with uh, signing the European Monetary Union. But the idea in the early 90s was that there was a a window of opportunity after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And as a politician, you don't have many possibilities to step forward with ambitious plans. So they just thought, okay, let's sign and start this European Monetary Union. Although we we, we are aware of the fact that not all conditions are fulfilled to make it a successful successful project and and here we are and and we see enormous diverge enormous divergence within the monetary union and i think that's that was the main template i had in mind when i was uh, writing this this sentence it was the debt in the 1920s and 30s or especially the 20s it was this debt relationship that was not set up in a, in a proper way and uh, in, 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 in recent times it, it was the monetary union of Europe that, that that's dangerous if you if you subscribe to an international agreement that takes away the main instrument of your economic policy to alleviate the unemployment in, in a time of crisis that's very dangerous and you you better do it right otherwise you have you run the risk of, of enormous political consequences that are highly negative to the whole of Europe. So in my research, I found you also wrote an essay titled Financial Crisis and Political Change, uh, the Great Depression in the United States in Historical Perspective. Having studied that whole era in such great detail, in addition to, the, to writing this book, um, do you see parallels with the current landscape 
both in an economic and political context in Europe and in North America? There are clearly parallels between what happened in the early 1930s and during the Euro crisis, as I explained in the in the beginning of the interview. In the US, of course, this, this article was written during or shortly after the financial crisis of 2008. And I was interested in the, in the question whether financial crisis engender political change. And it was clearly in the 1930s that the change from the Hoover administration and the Republican dominance in both houses of Congress to the, to the Democrats, that was a, a sweeping, a sweeping change. And it was, of course, uh, one of the consequences of the financial crisis. And in recent times, I'm quite sure that the victory of Barack Obama and the Democrats in the 2008 elections probably were not a direct, maybe not a totally direct consequence, but they were tied to the financial crisis that started under the administration of George W. Bush. I think that those were parallels. What, of course, I didn't realize that financial crisis can have medium-term or even long-term consequences. I, Maybe this is more controversial, but but I think the the consequences of the financial crisis in the U.S. on on on, on economic growth, unemployment, uh, wages, inequality was one factor that brought Donald Trump to the White House in in 2016. This, this populist agenda was probably a result of of the of the consequences of the financial crisis. So that 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 has always been fascinating to me how recessions financial crises uh, engender uh, political change. And I think there's clearly a parallel between between now and then. What is one event that has occurred in this decade, uh, it may be economic, financial or geopolitical, that you think will be viewed as a game changer when we look back 50 years from now? And why is that? The COVID crisis is clearly a, a break and uh, uh, it's a fundamental break, but it, it's, it's hard to say how whether it's a game changer, it probably it's going to be, but I'm very modest in in identifying the, the crucial mechanism uh, emanate, emanating from, from this crisis, because as I said, um, the, the financial crisis of 2008 had, had the, the obvious consequence of, of ending uh, the Repo- Republican administration in 2008-9, but, but the Donald Trump thing is, is probably also linked to the financial crisis indirectly. And you never know what's going to happen. Just look at, at what's happening now in the United States. You have um, enormous debate around racism. And th- th- of course, this has been an old debate. But the fact that it erupted right after the COVID crisis, that may be related. But it's just interesting that once you start opening up um, the economy and and you go slowly go back to normal, that you that you have this intense debate about uh, this topic. Maybe it's related. So I'm I'm I very very reluctant to to predict um, what the COVID crisis will cause. What's evident is that debt levels have gone up and probably continue to go up because the recession will will have will have negative consequences uh, unemployment will will stay quite elevated for for the time being so the, i mean those are clear clear consequences and of course they they have an influence on on the u.s elections in in the fall 
but not 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 so clear to me how they will influence those elections. Whether they will help Trump, the Trump administration, or not is not for me is not decided yet. Well, we have to we have to wait and see. It's not over yet. This this whole COVID crisis. So I think um, studying history helps you to to develop scenarios and to be open to very unexpected con- consequences. And historians should enter into a dialogue with the public about those possible and impossible consequences and these unintended consequences. And maybe the most obvious consequence uh, is not the most important uh, consequence. That may be that may be a lesson from history but you cannot derive a mechanism between a certain event and say medium-term consequences while we are on the subject of history i've often heard this being said that if you have learned history in a a linear way you're missing out on some important lessons do you agree with it and and can you articulate what what they are exactly meaning when they say that it's hard to say. I mean, linear. You cannot learn from history in a linear way. As I just said, it, the, the interesting thing about history is that you have, of course, direct consequences, but a lot of indirect consequences that are not visible immediately, but may, may prove to be much more important. And so, I, I have a problem with linear consequences, linear learning in the first place. I, I don't think this is possible. Uh, of course, you can, in a technical way, you can study banking crisis and then you see what what are good measures, what are bad measures. And uh, I think you can learn directly from that. In that sense, you can say linear way. But each banking crisis has additional features. We, we could observe that uh, uh, during the 2008 financial crisis that the authorities um, which especially the Fed was thinking about the 1930s, and they thought that 2007-8 was kind of a, a rerun of 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 that scenario. And they over in the beginning they overlooked additional very important mechanisms and crisis developments, and it took them a while to discover them. So if you this linear learning is is highly problematic, and but I think history is very useful. You you start to develop scenarios you you start to let's say to to be open to very unexpected consequences and then you probably you start you're able to react much more swiftly to those unexpected developments because you always expected them you didn't know what was coming but once it was coming you realized that this was part of a normal evolution of crisis and and, and i think that's very useful to 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 exercise to practice this this uh, historical fantasy and to to think what could happen as, as, as a next step. What are some of the books that have helped shape your worldview that you find yourself recommending to your friends, especially those who are not from your field of work? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time to read other uh, books outside of my uh, field because I there is so much to read that uh, once I don't have to do anything, I, I usually do sports or hiking or, or meet friends. My reading is, is quite narrow and I regret it, but I just haven't figured out how to <laughs> to have more time for that. It's probably not very known, but I, it's an interesting uh, theater drama by a Swiss author, uh, Max Frisch. It's called Biography. And it's it's very pleasant because a, a guy has the possibility to rewrite his biography and then they 
they're on stage and they do the new scenes. But of course, the, the, those new scenes have other negative consequences. And in the end, it gets much worse than the, the real life he, he had behind him. I, I like that a lot because you, you often think, well, I should have done that or that. But in the end, you, you didn't do that. You know, you just, you did what you did. And probably there was a reason for that. And this, this idea of being somebody else would have been much better is probably completely wrong. And, and you should concentrate on what, what, you, what, you, what you've been doing and, and build on that and not to think about other scenarios that possibly would have been better for your life. And I think that's a very, very useful way to think about about your own life. And I, I recommend this book a lot. And because it's also um, written in a in a light way, it's also ironic. It makes you laugh about your own misconceptions and 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 your your self image. And, and I think that what that's one of the best books I've ever read. I've read it several times, um, and it, it, I still like it. We will leave a link to the to that book in addition to your uh, book in our show notes what is one topic or personality you, you wish you could write your next book on um, i'm already writing on it it's uh it's kind of a sequel to the 1931 book it's about uh, 1953 the idea is to write about process after world war ii um, the way they managed to reduce german debt and uh, to come up with a solution that was good both for the creditors and for Germany. Uh, the creditors got much more money in the end, and Germany could grow after World War II. There was the German economic miracle, so it was good for both sides. So it shows that people directly learned from this catastrophe of 1931 and in 53 they came up with a better solution. And I'm going to do it in the same way, I think. It's going to be a short book with many personalities. I try to explain what economic historians today think about this period and about this debt agreement of 1953. Before I let you go, if my listeners want to connect with you, what would be the best place they can find you, connect with you? Um, I have a, a website on the University of Zurich in the history department. And then you link to my Google Google web page, which you can easily find. There is my my email is on it, my address, so you you can find me very easily. I could not find you on Twitter. Is that by design? Yes, I, I just don't have the time to be on Twitter. I I study some of the Twitters of my colleagues, and I find them very useful. I'm I'm not against uh, Twitter at all if it's used a productive, constructive way. But I, I just simply don't have the time to uh, to do it. I, as I said, I, if I have time, I would rather prefer to read a book that's not related to my field of talk because I like going outside, doing sports or hiking or things like that. Um, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I look forward to more of such conversations and, and we all look forward to the next book that you're writing um, and, and hope it will be equally fascinating as the one that we just spoke about. Oh, thank you very, very much for, for this conversation, for your interest and uh, for this, all these interesting questions. Uh, thanks a lot.